Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. This passage is continuing a, a prayer um, that it began in verse 15. So that's why it, it seems like we're coming into the middle of a sentence. We are coming into the middle of a sentence. Um, and in fact, um, if you were reading in Greek, um, you probably wouldn't find a real period, um, a real end of a sentence until, you know, well into chapter two. Um, it's a massively run-on sentence. It's really, uh, it's really bad, actually. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a, uh, an introduction to a translation of the New Testament once where he, uh, he was explaining the need for a new translation and, and kind of answering the issue. Don't we have the King James Version? Isn't it the most beautiful, lofty uh, you know, expression of God's word in the English language? Isn't it just too wonderful to give up on? And Lewis's response was, that's actually that's part of the problem. Um, with the King James Version uh, is not just that it's old, which it is, and not just that some of the language is antiquated now, which it is, but that the King James makes the New Testament sound beautiful. It makes it sound lofty. Um, it makes it sound very, very religious. Um, and, uh, and he's like, I mean, and Lewis was reading, you know, Homer uh, in Greek when he was 18. So he knows Greek, and he's like, this is not good Greek. This is not the Greek that a, that a, literary, uh, a literarily trained uh, native speaker of Greek would write. This is, the, this is the Greek that a person would speak who learned it um, just to be able to, to get around um, in the Greco-Roman world. Kind of like, I mean, a person who, who learned English just to come on business trips to the United States. That's the kind of Greek that it is. So it's kind of, it's kind of cranky. It's kind of wonky sometimes, and this is one of the places. This is a really, really long, awkward sentence, and that was uh, part of why I, uh, you saw it laid out the way that you did up here. I had to actually I put the period there. There's not really one there, but uh, you'll understand why in a few minutes. I did that. Um, so we're honing in on the section of this prayer about the power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and why we need to know it. Uh, 19, verse 19 was also part of our passage last week, so this will be a little familiar, but it's, it's worth working it over. That when uh, God says, or when, when Paul says that he wants us to know God, and he wants us to, he prays that we would know God's power, he is not talking about intellectual knowledge. Um, he is talking about uh, a very different kind of a knowledge. But we need to know God's power. Uh, this is part of his ongoing prayer for the church, uh, for uh, Christians everywhere. Why is he praying that we would know the power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Why do we need to know that power? 
Uh, well, one of the things that this passage is telling us is that it requires God's power for us to believe. And again, this was, this was part of the sermon last week, but in case you missed it, um, verse 19, that he wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And in fact, if I were punctuating this part, I would remove that comma, right? Because it's those of us who believe according to the working of his great might. Right? That means we believe in people who believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus because God exercised a work of his great might in them in order to bring them to that. Now, why would that be necessary? Well, it's necessary because it's hard to believe. It can be hard to believe Christianity. It is hard to believe it. Now, why is it hard to believe it? Um, on the one hand, uh, the central claim of Christianity is that somebody came back from the dead. Uh, and that doesn't happen every day. Um, I've never seen it happen. You've never seen it. Have you ever seen it? You've never seen it happen. Nobody, nobody in this room has ever seen it happen. Nobody that I know has ever seen it happen. Um, if somebody told me that they had seen it happen, I would be extremely skeptical. I wonder, did anybody else see it happen? Can we talk to the person who this was? Can, you know, how, I would not be, I would not be easy for me to believe that that had happened. Um, and, you know, particularly for us, as we are uh, steeped in science, um, we are a very uh, mechanical culture. Uh, we're a very, we're a culture of engineering. There are, even right in front of me, right here, there are many uh, engineered components that I wouldn't know how to make, but, but a scientist figured out how to make. Um, we rely on, on that type of science constantly. Uh, and so, um, believing something that seems to fly in the face of that kind of scientific knowledge is especially hard for us. So I want to you know, address that first and say, um, that's actually not the thing that makes it the hardest. Um, there are things, and I mean, and a scientist will tell you this, there are things, there are phenomena, there are things that happen, even in laboratories, that scientists are not able to address with science. There are things that science cannot help them with. Uh, because one of the central components of scientific method is reproducibility. And sometimes stuff happens, even under the controlled circumstances of science experiments, that they can't reproduce. Wow, that was crazy. Let's try that again. Doesn't happen again. Let's try it again. Doesn't happen again. Other people come and try it. Like, we all saw it, but we cannot apply science to it because we can't get it to happen again. It's just that fact just makes it outside the scope of scientific examination. There are features of the claim of the resurrection of Christ that are simply irreproducible. Um, the claim is that he was God in the flesh. Well, you can't make that happen. You can't reproduce the circumstances of that. The claim is that he came back from the dead. You can't reproduce the circumstances that brought him back from the dead. So science can't help us examine this. I mean, and the discipline of history is a little more helpful because the discipline of history deals with all kinds of irreproducible things, like Julius Caesar conquering the Gaul. Uh, you know, how did that happen? 
Well, we, we got witnesses, we got, you know, we got records, we got journals of people. And, and frankly, the historical evidence regarding the resurrection of Christ is far better than Julius Caesar's conquest of Gaul. Uh, so we can examine the history, and we can be skeptical about it. We can give ourselves a high burden of proof for it because it doesn't happen every day, but science is irrelevant to it because it's, it's simply irreproducible on its face. Um, but that, so that's not the real reason that makes it, like, we got less evidence for Julius Caesar conquering Gaul, but everybody believes that. No problem. Uh, I've never, you know, I've never been to Japan. I believe that it exists. Um, I, it's easy for me to take people's word for that. It's easy for me to take people's word that, that uh, Japan exists. It's, easier, it's easy for me to uh, take people's word that Julius Caesar conquered Gaul. Uh, what makes it hard to take people's word on this? Right? There's, the, there's the rarity of the event itself, but we know that rare things happen. We know that in, inexplainable things happen. Uh, the fact that it's rare or unexplainable or difficult to explain is not a reason to reject it. So what makes it so hard? Here's the thing. Mostly, people only believe what they want to believe. People only believe, mostly, what they want to believe. I mean, the, uh, <laughs> the events of the last year uh, in the political life of this country, uh, bear witness to this fact. Uh, the whole phenomenon of fake news. Um, the definition of fake news, fake news is a news report which flies in the face of your preconceptions. That's fake news. Anything that you hear on the news now that you say, well, that, that is not what I believed uh, to begin with, therefore that must be fake news. I mean, that's, how, that's what my Facebook feed looks like is people on the right posting things and people on the left saying that's fake news and people on the left posting things and people on the right saying that's fake news because I don't want to believe that. It would, it would require me to change my worldview and I don't want to do that because you know what? It's hard to change a worldview. Uh, it's hard to lay aside your selfish priorities. It's hard. It's hard work uh, to come to believe a thing that contradicts uh, your preconceptions. Okay. We've got, you know, the other, the other thing that's in my Facebook feed is a lot of pseudoscience. You know, a lot of stuff, oh, this, this medical thing works really well, and that medical thing works really well, and, and vaccines are, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to leave that alone. See, because I don't want you to leave. Okay. Uh, so what is it about the resurrection of Christ? The claim that that is, the claims of Christianity that contradict your preconceptions, that contradict your worldview, that, that fly in the face of what you want to believe. Here is the thing that you want to believe. You want to believe that you're pretty good. You want to believe in your own moral strength. But the fact of the matter is, and I think you know this, I think you know this if you think about it. You are a much bigger jerk than you think you are. You are a much bigger jerk than you think you are. Uh, your uh, relationships, people are much more generous with you, need to be much more generous with you in order to be your friend than you think they are. You think that everybody, uh, it's a privilege 
for them to be your friend. The fact of the matter is they got to forgive you for stuff. The fact of the matter is they got to overlook. And I, you know, you got to overlook a lot of things in me and forgive me for a lot of things, for being hyper-focused and uh, uh, shy and self-conscious and uh, a lot of worse things. And, you know, you're a much bigger, I'm a much bigger jerk than we think we are. And Christianity tells us, you know, well, first of all, the reason I have to tell you that, the reason you are a much bigger jerk than you think you are is your brain ignores the evidence. You know, you, you do a thing, you, you make a comment, and you, your brain knows that was rude. And you immediately start telling yourself all of the reasons that it was actually okay. You snap at somebody, and you immediately start thinking, well, well it was really justified. It was really okay that I, that I spoke that way because they did this and they did that and I'm really, and, and probably nobody even noticed anyway. And that's all false. Uh, but your brain plays these tricks on you when you're, uh, when you're confronted with evidence uh, that contradicts things that you want to believe and you want to believe that you are a nice, good, friendly person and it's a privilege for people to be your friend. So this is the main reason that Christianity is hard to believe, because Christianity doesn't just say that. Christianity says that you are a far bigger jerk even than that. Christianity says that you are in such bad shape morally, that you are so helpless. You know, we all kind of, we're all kind of always hanging out thinking, if I just try a little harder, then I'll be the kind of person that I know I want to be. It hasn't happened yet. Maybe just because I haven't tried hard enough yet. But if I, if, if I tried hard enough, then I would, I'd be my, and, I, and I'll get there. Every day in every way, I'm getting better and better. Uh, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. But what Christianity says, what the claim of the resurrection of Christ says, if that is true, then you are a member of a people of a species that when given the opportunity crucified the Son of God. And the claim of Christianity is that if you had been there, you would have done the same thing. And that's a highly offensive thing to say. Uh, that flies in the face of everything I want to believe about myself. Christianity says that for you to be uh, fixed took the immeasurable greatness of the power of God working his great might. I don't know of another passage in the Bible that talks about the power of God this superlatively. Count the like immeasurable greatness power, working, great might that he worked. Like it just lays it on and on and on about how much power God had to exert. How much power God demonstrated by raising Christ from the dead, and this is why I included it, and you. Like that's how the, that's how the, the language is laid out. Like if you, you would drop parenthesis, I like that this is up there. Uh, 
You draw parentheses around right that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Draw a parenthesis right there after the between dead and and, and then draw another one right here after the word all and you. Right, everything in there is modifying, is describing uh, what God did when He raised Christ from the dead. If you were simplifying the sentence, like if you were like a writing teacher, right, that's what you do. You say when He worked when he uh, raised Christ from the dead and you, the working of his great might when he, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and you. It took a tremendous, imaginable act of power for God to begin the work of making us the kind of people that we want to be. And that's a highly offensive claim, that you're just not that good. In fact, you're that bad. That if it had just been you, it would have taken the immeasurable greatness of God's power according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. But I think when we're alone at night, we're looking up at the ceiling in the dark. We know that this is true. We know that we are in that condition. I think we really know how often we snub and hurt others, how frequently we, as one of our confessions of sin says, walk away from neighbors in need wrapped in our own concerns. Think of those dark nights of the soul. We know, as, the, as Psalm, one of the Psalms says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. I think we all have moments when we feel the truth of that about ourselves. Feeling keeps rearing its head, and you keep stuffing it back down. You try to drown it out with pleasure. You try to drown it out with alcohol. You try to drown it out with sex. You try to drown it out with Netflix. You try to drown it out with weekends uh, by the lake. But you can't drown it out. It keeps coming back. All of the therapies, all of the uh, solutions that the world have to offer come uh, down essentially to Try to ignore that voice. Try to ignore it. Try to ignore it. Try to ignore it. Try to quiet it. Meditate. Try to quiet it. Try harder. Try to quiet it. Believe in yourself. Look in the mirror and tell yourself, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And eventually, it'll be true. But what Christianity invites you to do is embrace that truth. What Christianity uniquely invites you to do is the next time that dragon rears its head, give it a big hug and say it is true. How can you bear that? How can you bear to look that monster in the face? Well, the working of his great might enables us to do that. If you are a Christian, 
You are a Christian because God worked his great might to bring you to believe. And now in this prayer, Paul is praying for us and leading us to pray for ourselves and one another uh, that we would know that power. The power, he says, is at work in you. The power is at work in you. That power is at work in you. And what he is praying is that we would know it. He is not praying that we would have more power. He's not praying that we would access more power. He's not praying that we would become stronger by working out our muscles. He's praying that we would know the power that is at work in us. So what does it mean to know God's power? I think it's clear that he's not talking about knowing what it is. Uh, it's not talking about knowing a God, about God's power. Uh, right? Anybody who was receiving this letter from Paul would already know the facts. If they were already a Christian, they would already know the facts. They would already know that Christ had been raised from the dead. They would, they would confess it regularly. They would already know they, they would, and confess regularly that uh, Christ was seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. They would already know that Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. They would already know the facts that he was above every name that is named. They would already know the facts that he was above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. They would already know the facts. And we can already know the facts that he put all things under his feet and still not know the power of God. So what is he talking about? I mean... It's like this. It's like you can know the formula E equals MC squared, and like me, have no idea what that means. You know that it's got something to do with how uh, nuclear power is applied. Uh, you know that it's, some, that it's the, the, okay, it's the uh, energy equals the square, the square of the uh, matter times the, the square of the speed of light. Okay, the energy that's released equals that. But I do not know the power of a nuclear weapon. Who does? Who knows the power of a nuclear weapon? Right? I'm not talking about being able to understand the formula better than I did, but who knows the power of it? I would submit to you that there is only one person in the history of the world who knows the power of a nuclear weapon, and that's Harry S. Truman. Right? The man who said, fire, and Nagasaki was gone. The man who said, fire, and Hiroshima was gone. That is power. That is no Can you imagine what that would feel like? To know that all you had to do was say the word, and an entire city would be wiped out, millions of people incinerated, and many more. Uh, dying from horrible diseases later, and many more living with horrible diseases later. How do you know power? By using it. Right? The difference between me and Harry S. Truman is that he used that power to its maximum. So when Paul is praying that we would know the power that is at work in us, 
He's praying that we would use it. That we would experience what it is like to use this power that is at work in us. Right? This is... Oh, come on, you knew it was coming. This is what Darth Vader means. Don't act so surprised, Your Highness. This is what Darth Vader means when he says to Luke at the end of Empire Strikes Back, if you only knew the power of the dark side. Right? He wants him to use it. He wants him to know it by using it. Um, I grew up in a rural area, um, and in a, an area as rural as mine, if you had wanted to go anywhere, you had to drive. So the kind of the rite of passage, if you grew up in a city, you may not, have, you may not be able to relate to this experience. But like, when I got a driver's license and I got a car, I have this very clear memory of, it was, it was very early on in that uh, phase of my life, very shortly after I had gotten my first car, that I, I went to visit a friend of mine, and after I left his house, I drove past Dairy Queen, and I thought, I can just go there. <laughs> I can just turn in here, and I did. I, I don't even care about Dairy Queen, but like I went in, and I went in to the, to, the, to the Dairy Queen, and I bought ice cream, and I sat and I ate it at my leisure. And then I left, and then I went somewhere else, and I was like, I can do anything. Uh, you know, the knowing the power of driving a car was not for me about understanding the mechanics of how it worked. You don't need to understand how God's power works in you any more than I need to understand how pistons drive a crankshaft in order to know the power of being able to drive a car. Paul is praying that we would know this power that is at work in us by experiencing it, by using it. Where do we need this power? Um, you know, that's why I want to uh, you know, point you to Psalm 13. And I wonder uh, how much you can relate to this. You know, particularly if you're a Christian. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? You read this, it starts to tell you, you probably get the idea that he's talking about a physical enemy of some, some kind. But I relate to this, and maybe you do too, the enemy of my sin. How long is it going to triumph over me? God, how long are you going to leave me wallowing in this before you rescue me? And what Paul is saying is the power is already at work in you. He has already given you, as the New Testament says, everything that you need for life and godliness. When he raised him from the dead and you, it's already at work in you, it's already been applied to you. Okay. If you are like me, um, there's a good chance that you are hearing this sermon and hearing what I'm saying about the power already being at work in you. If you're a Christian, that power is already there. It's already available. 
Uh, and you may be experiencing that message with a great deal of frustration. Because I don't see it. I'm back in Psalm 13. How long? Okay, you're telling me that the power's there. But I keep getting beaten down. I keep snapping at my kids. I keep uh, lying when, uh, when push comes to shove and I'm afraid. I tell, I tell a lie. I keep doing it. How long, oh Lord, will you leave me this way? I keep running to, to things that don't satisfy me to medicate my pain, even though I know they're destroying me. How long? You may be, are you, are, do you experience that frustration? Now, one answer, you know, why don't I see the power? One answer to that, one answer. This is only one, but one answer to that is you might need to try harder. Um, as I said earlier, I wanna, and I want to reiterate, we are not talking about gaining power by exercising your muscles, right? As if you have spiritual muscles, and the more you repeat small moral actions, you get bigger muscles, and then, and then you can do bigger moral actions, and you get better and better. Uh, no, the power is from God, and it's already there. Everything is already there. So what do you gain from trying harder? You do gain some things. One thing that you gain is you gain a realer and truer despair over your own works. Um, you, might, you might be sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, someday I'll try harder, and someday uh, uh, I will get better. Well, give it a shot. Come on, for real. Because the harder you try, then you will learn as you continue to fail. You, again, this is a thing you can know intellectually, but until you have given it every ounce of your energy to try to resist the temptation, to try to bottle your anger, to try to hold it down, to try to keep from lashing out, uh, to try to be honest, to try to be virtuous, to try to be upright, to try to be faithful to your spouse, the harder you try, until you have really tried, you could still be holding on to some hope. Eh, I, okay, yeah, I need help, but, but if I really tried. But the harder you try, the more you will despair. And that could be bad, despair. That could lead you to giving in. That could lead you to say, look, I'm never going to conquer this. I may as well just do what feels good. But as a Christian, when you experience that, you will gain and can gain a realer and truer dependence on God's grace. And that's what we want, brothers and sisters. We want to, if we want to know the power of God, we have to know that we need it. And we have to run to it and cling to it. You gain, as you try harder, you gain opportunities to see the power of God at work. Um, familiar passage to many Christians, Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 21. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind 
and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Um, People who have the power of God at work in them are still going to have days like that. So what do we do then? What do we do on that day? Okay. Thank God for this passage and this prayer. Because what it tells us is that the evidence that the power of God is at work in you is not found in your moral improvement. You don't have to look for the signs of your moral improvement to know that the power of God is at work in you. He locates it in two things in the prayer. One, he locates it in the fact that you came to faith in the first place. The fact that you ever assented to these outrageous doctrines that are so offensive to your soul. The fact that you ever acknowledged them, that Jesus came back from the dead, is evidence that the power of God is already at work in you. And he located it in another thing, and that is in the objective historical fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. How do you know that the power of God is at work in you on the day when you're finding a law warring in your members that when you want to do right, you can't, and you do the wrong thing, and when you don't want to do wrong, you do it anyway, and you find that law warring? How do you know that the power of God is really in you, really with you, really at work, It's because the historical fact, it's not found in you. Don't look inward. Don't look at your belly button. Look at a history book. Look at the scriptures. Look at the evidence. Look at the testimonies. Are these witnesses, reliable witnesses, do they seem like insane people? Do they seem like delusional people? Do they seem like megalomaniacs? Do they seem like psychopaths? Do they seem like schizophrenics? Or do they seem like people who really may have had this experience? And if they did, and if they are reliable witnesses, then you have a historical fact that you can look to to know that the power of God is at work. That display, the greatest act of God's power that he ever wrought in bringing Christ from the dead, you have firm historical evidence for it. And thank God that that is where he locates our assurance not in our experience of his power, but in the display of his power in time and space. So you might need to try harder. You might need to run back to this passage and locate your hope in that objective reality. You might also need to avail yourself, as we say as Presbyterians, avail yourself of the outward and ordinary means of grace. Because that's what we're looking for. We're looking for God's gracious action toward us. How does his grace come to us? Okay. So look at the end of the passage now. Put all things under his feet. Gave him as head over all things. This is one of the things, uh, places where the King James was a little confusing to me because I grew up on it where it said he gave him to be head over all things. And it sounded to me 
as a, as a late 20th century, now 21st century reader, it sounded to me at the time uh, that uh, being head over all things was a gift that he had given to Christ. But that's not accurate. He gave him as head over all things to the church. The gift is to the church, and the gift is Christ as head. Christ being the head over all things is the gift. It is a gift that Jesus has authority over all things. Man, we don't, we don't like authority. We don't like kings. Right? Christ the King is a countercultural name for a church. People like churches called Redeemer and Grace, you know, and, and reality and relevant and, and revenant. Uh, People don't like kings, but Christ being the king, Christ being the head over all things, is a gift to us. All things being under his feet is a gift to us. His claim on your life and soul is not enslavement, but it is a gift. If he is the head, If he is the head, and we are his body, as it says here, the church is his body, then everything from, you know, all of the energy of life is flowing from him to us. Right? His authority is good news because it means that we are connected to him organically, really, and his life flows to us. We're talking about heads and bodies you can't separate them from each other. You can't separate a head from its body. You can't separate a body from its head. Things die. Heads uh, need bodies and bodies need heads. And that is, did you hear what I just said? Heads need bodies? Does Jesus need us? Okay, let's be theologically accurate. No, Jesus does not need you. But, Jesus has so joined himself with his church that that is where he is found and he is now inseparable from her. The church is now inseparable from Christ and Christ is inseparable from the church. Life flows from him to it, to us together. So that what is true of the head is true of the body, right? And the head was crucified and raised from the dead. We have been crucified with Christ. That death of his that, that bore the punishment for sin, one of the ways we talk about that availing for us is that we were in him, that his death was our death. I don't need to pay for my sins because I, I already died. The worst thing that could have happened has already happened. And so it can be said now that his resurrection is our resurrection. So he raised him from the dead and us. And it can be said now that his body, the church, is the fullness of him. We are his fullness. The church is his fullness. Right? It's not a compliment to him. It doesn't complete him. It doesn't make him 
any more than what he was without us. But now, having joined himself to us, the experience of the fullness and the presence of Christ is in his church. The church is where we find the fullness of Christ. And so we are able to come to this table in a moment and be fed, be nourished. We want to experience the power of, of God that's at work in us. It is here for us to feed on as we come and eat the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us to experience the power that is at work in us. We pray that you would deliver us from cowardice. We pray that you would deliver us from fear. We pray that you would grant us faith when our lives don't look like your power is at work. We pray that you would draw us back to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. We pray that you would draw us back to this passage and this prayer. Uh, we pray that uh, this prayer would become our prayer. We pray that as, uh, as we pray and seek you, that this would be how we pray. Father, we pray that you would deliver us from shallowness and, and looking only for our circumstances to be altered. Uh, instead, Lord, we pray uh, that you would look for us to exercise your power in us. In Jesus' name. Amen.